Hello again, my name is William Strejcik and allow me to welcome you to the Orient Express, a podcast focusing on the historical development of the Middle East region, its politics, war and conflict in the 20th and 21st century. In this podcast, I shall guide you for approximately 120 years of tangled history with an aim to cover all the important issues and events that might help you to better understand the present-day situation of the region, its individual countries and their struggles and issues that stands on the very same historical development that this podcast aimed to describe. In today's episode, we are going to look upon the Australian and New Zealand forces that served in the Middle East during the Great War. The Great War is in this matter seen as a very important moment for the Australian and New Zealand army since the conflict stands in the center of their present-day identity and in this episode we are going to look upon the role of Australian and New Zealand soldiers, how they spend their free time, what was so specific about their involvement and much more. So sit back and relax as you are about to board yet another history episode on the Orient Express podcast. The romantic image of the Middle Eastern campaign is largely a product of the desert mounted corps sweeping advance northwards from Megiddo in September and October 1918. This operation was essentially one of movement and is frequently held up as a contrast to the laborious battles fought on the Western Front. The nature of the terrain in the Middle East and the distribution of troops over large sections of the front meant that the theater was suited to the employment of large formations of cavalry. The Desert Mounted Corps was principally organized around the mounted troops provided by Australia and New Zealand to aid Britain's imperial war effort. By September 1918, as many as 14 of the 36 mounted regiments in the Egyptian Expeditionary Force were formed from Australian light horsemen and from New Zealand mounted riflemen. Of these regiments, those that served in the Australian and New Zealand Mounted Divisions saw the greatest amount of action. They had carried the advance across Sinai in 1916, played a key role in all three battles of Gaza, and in 1918 dominated operations in the Jordan Valley. This division offers the chance to examine a unit that withstood the pressures of combat continuously for three years, in contrast to the British Territorial Infantry Divisions of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force, who saw little action in 1916 and often only periodic engagements in 1917 and 1918. The role of mounted soldiers during the First World War has been the subject of much historiographical controversy, particularly in Britain since hostilities ended in 1918. Events in France and Flanders seemingly suggested that the age of the horse had come to an end. The Middle Eastern theater, both in Egypt and Palestine and in Mesopotamia, demonstrated lessons that challenged this approach. Here, horse-borne formations proved an exceptional value, allowing commanders to exploit fleet and battlefield opportunities for exploitation with their mobility. Furthermore, on these battlefields, Cavalry served alongside and integrated fully with the arms of modern industrialized warfare, tanks, aeroplanes and artillery. The mounted troops of Australia and New Zealand made their primary contribution to the war against Turkey in Sinai and Palestine. Both the light horse and the mounted rifles were the products of the early settler societies in Australia and New Zealand. Cavalry first appeared in the colonial militias formed in Australia from the mid-1850s onwards, and by 1885 all six colonies had mounted units, with the regional headquarters often based in small country towns. 
The mounted troops of both countries gained their first experience of modern warfare during the South African War of 1899-1902. New Zealand sent 6,520 to the conflict, suffering over 230 casualties from combat and disease. Australia also raised light horse contingents to serve in the campaign, eventually sending 16,378 men. These volunteers were frequently dispatched to the front line with little training. Nevertheless, the troops of both nations gained impressive reputations for their versatility and many British officers felt that the men of the Dominions had a natural affinity for mounted work. They were particularly noted for their ability to tend for themselves while on extended operations far from their bases, a style of campaigning that came to dominate in the latter half of the war. Both nations continued to raise mounted units after the South African War to contribute to the strength of their peacetime militias and these formed a portion of their commitment to provide expeditionary forces to help Britain fight future overseas wars. By 1914, there were as many as 23 light horse regiments spread across Australia. These were grouped into seven brigades formed after the Federation in 1901. On the outbreak of war in 1914, both countries mobilized their expeditionary forces and began recruiting. Australia initially raised only four light horse regiments, forming a single brigade. These were not based on the existing units spread around the country, but were recruited on a state basis. Initially, both New Zealand's and Australia's regiments were solely comprised of volunteers. New Zealand, however, found it impossible to maintain its forces, which eventually consisted of one infantry division and the New Zealand Mounted Rifles, by voluntary means only. In August 1916, a military service act set up a conscription system, which drew initially on the country's unmarried men and then on its married men in an order derived from the number of their dependents. Australia attempted to introduce conscription twice during the First World War, first in 1916 and then in 1917, as it faced similar manpower difficulties to New Zealand. The two referenda that were held to decide the issues were however both rejected by the Australian public. Australia thus retained a volunteer army through to the end of the war. This placed a considerable strain on the units serving in the front line, which was particularly evident in the Australian Corps on the Western Front. The failure to provide sufficient drafts of replacements through conscription meant that the Australian Infantry Force effectively fought itself to destruction in the closing battles of 1918. The first action that they took part in did not allow them to use their horse mobility. Instead, they were confined to the trenches of Gallipoli, in an intensive infantry war. The troopers were reluctant to be sent as reinforcement to infantry battalions and were allowed instead to serve in their own regiments. They arrived on the peninsula in May 1915 and did not leave until the general evacuation in December. The small size of these regiments put them at a disadvantage, as did their lack of training for such operations. In addition, they were not equipped to the same standard as the infantry and thus suffered hideous casualty rates. Of the 477 men who landed with the 5th Australian Regiment, only 105 were left at the end of the campaign, of whom only 49 had never been away from the peninsula. Once the light horse and mounted rifles had returned from Gallipoli in late 1915, they engaged in an extensive period of rest and recuperation in Egypt. 
This involved a considerable amount of training and the integration of a large number of new drafts sent out to replace the casualties suffered during the Peninsular Campaign. This was followed by a period of petrol work in the Egyptian desert and along the Nile to deal with the rising of the Senussi. Regular patrols were carried out, which in the eyes of one trooper were intended as a check against suspected sabotage or revolution and to show the flag and maintain the order. This period of imperial policing soon came to an end, as the Turks decided once again to extort pressure on the British forces defending the Suez Canal. Up to March 1916, the 1st and 2nd Australian Light Horse Brigades and the New Zealand Mounted Rifles Brigade had operated largely as separated entities. They were now grouped together to form the Australian and New Zealand Mounted Division under the command of Major General Henry Shovel. The combat record of the Australian and New Zealand Mounted Division marks it out as one of the most successful of the formations that served in the Egyptian Expeditionary Force. It played a key role in the victories that cleared the Turks from Sinai and in the impressive mounted operations after Fort Gaza. Moreover, it managed to remain in the front line as an effective fighting unit until after the September 1918 offensive when the effects of three years campaigning finally took their toll. Combat was a constant feature of the Australian and New Zealand Mounted Division's wartime experience in the Middle East, as was hardship at the front with the division only spending one brief period in billets over the course of three years. This raises interesting questions about how a mixed force of Australian and New Zealand amateur soldiers engaged in an overtly imperial campaign was able to endure the hardships of combat for so long. For Henry Gullett, a journalist attached to the light horse who was described by one senior British officer as an Australian gutter press merchant and who would later become the official historian of the Australia's campaigns in the Middle East, the answer to Australian and New Zealand Army Corps endurance lay in the unique characteristics of the Australian fighting man. The light horseman was a representative of Australia's rural population and as such had learned to be an individual, preparing him very well for life on campaign in the Middle East. He was already a skilled horseman, as well as an expert observer and fine judge of country. This was seen as a direct product of growing up on the vast farms that covered much of Australia. The light horseman's individuality could be troublesome, leading to clashes with those who upheld the finer points of military discipline. These characteristics may not have made them good soldiers, but their combat abilities on the battlefield made them into outstanding warriors. Gullet saw the success of the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps as resting on their spirit which originated on the beaches of Gallipoli and was first expressed in the dispatch of the English reporter Alice Ashmead Barlett. The Australian and New Zealand Army Corps spirit had become the dominant interpretative means by which the experiences of Australian and New Zealand soldiers during the First World War and subsequent conflicts had been viewed. Bill Gamage's groundbreaking study on the life of ordinary Australian soldiers falls back on Bean's assertions about the rural nature of the light horsemen. They were bushmen used to the harsh life of the outback and thus able to cope easily with the heat and long days in the saddle faced in Sinai and Palestine. Some elements of the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps myth may have been embellished either during its creation or subsequent development, but it is still possible to find aspects that have resonance in the experiences of the men who served in the Australian and New Zealand Mounted Division. 
Of crucial importance was the role of Gallipoli in creating the legend of Australian and New Zealand military prowess. With such a cataclysmic experience, it is hard to see how the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps legend could have been born. For Brown and many other troopers, Gallipoli was an open wound that needed to be healed. The instilling of revenge among the men of the Australian and New Zealand Mounted Division was not the only role that the Peninsular Campaign played. It also set a high standard of military accomplishment for the troopers to try to attain in future combat operations. Gallipoli had shown the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps soldier at his best, preserving against extreme odds and hardship, and managing to cling on against a determined enemy. Gallipoli provided the men of Australian and New Zealand Army Corps with a complex memory. It could be used to herald battlefield achievements, instill a desire for revenge and demonstrate the level of endurance that the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps was capable of achieving. In contrast, it could be a powerful reminder of failure and the loss of war, and although it rests on the heart of the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps legend, it could serve to undermine its value to the combat soldier. Furthermore, it is not evident that Australian and New Zealand soldiers who served at Gallipoli made greater reference to the operations in their letters or diaries than did the British infantry, who also took part, as seen with the men of the 54th Division. It is hard to see the motivational role of this one campaign as only of value to the development of Australian and New Zealand Army Corps' battlefield prowess. The extent to which Gallipoli fostered a flowering of national identity within Australia and New Zealand may have been of some value. Other than the South African War at the start of the century, this was the first occasion on which Australian and New Zealand soldiers had served in a major overseas conflict. Like the British comrades, the men of the Australian and New Zealand Mounted Division coped with the difficulties of military service through frequent reference to their past civilian lives. The Australian and New Zealand Army Corps forces were citizen armies, largely made up of volunteers until New Zealand's introduction of conscription in late 1916. In order to establish a link with home, many soldiers in the division were prolific letter writers and looked forward eagerly to the days when mail was delivered to their unit. It was, however, easy for soldiers to let the writing of letters become a one-way affair. Some troopers simply could not understand the ability of their comrades to construct long narratives about their activities in the Middle East. Ernest Pickering, a quartermaster sergeant in the 2nd Australian Light Horse Regiment, was disappointed by his brother's request for a more interesting and lengthy description of the campaign. He informed him that those who can write news letters from the desert are generally situated in Cairo, some hundreds of miles away, and that these people are generally liars writing all about themselves in order getting their letter published in the newspapers. Nevertheless, correspondence with friends or relatives helped to provide a direct link back to the nations and societies that the men of the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps were fighting for in the Middle East. The association with home was reinforced by the sending of gift parcels to men at the front. These did not have to be of practical value. The arrival of a box of boomerangs for a major of the mounted division's signal squadron provided much amusement for the officers and men. Of greater value were gifts of food, which were used to supplement the limited rations received in the front line. Most food parcels were seen as the common property of the unit, to be devoured by all those who were present. 
Gifts that arrived while men were in hospital in Egypt were frequently forwarded onto the men at the front, who were felt to be in greater need of them. Comfort funds back in Australia and New Zealand also sent out gift parcels, providing a link back to home even if they lacked some of the personal relevance of a family donation. All Australian and New Zealand Army Corps troops could enjoy the delights of the civilian world of the Middle East when they were given the brief opportunity for leave from the front line. Leave to Australia or New Zealand was extremely rare, only being granted in exceptional circumstances and then usually only to officers. Despite its irregularity, leave was welcomed by the men. As with the territorial soldiers of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force, it offered a chance to break with the norms of military life and return, all too briefly, to some resemblance of their previous civilian existence. Even the army rest camp at Kantara could seem like a home far removed from the war, with comfortable bunks and roomy tents with pin-up pictures on the tent walls, lashing off the kind of ration we sometimes dreamed of, plenty of canteen goods to hand, and even a glimpse of shears and pyjamas here and there. For many Australian and New Zealand army corpsmen, leave offered an opportunity to behave as tourists in a land they would normally have had little chance of visiting. For some men, though, the experience of leave was not a pleasant one, as they found it hard to adjust to their new, non-military surrounding. Life at the front could become so ingrained in them that it was hard to escape it. The larrikinism of the Australian and New Zealand army corps was often fueled by their recourse to drink as a means to escape the rigors of military life. While the division had served in Sinai and southern Palestine, alcohol problems had largely been confined to leave periods, although they had led to many of the worst incidents of Australian and New Zealand army corps unrests in Cairo. Once a number of Jewish villages had been liberated in Palestine, however, it became much easier for the men to obtain drink on a daily basis. The men of the Mounted Division considered the capture of Dayran in November 1917 with its large winery to be the greatest prize of the war, and a number of days were spent indulging in the delights of the sellers. Attempts to control the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps' access to the local vines provide futile, with ingenious methods found to avoid restrictions. At Sarona, the Egyptian Expeditionary Force placed a British infantry guard on the vine press. The men of the New Zealand Mounted Rifles formed a fake guard to relieve them, and by the time senior British commanders had realized that they had been duped, the cellars had been emptied in a carefully choreographed operation. The military authorities were not just concerned with preventing drunkenness, they were also worried about the health of the troops. Many of beverages were locally brewed and could easily spread diseases around units. Despite these concerns, many soldiers persisted, choosing to cope with the harsh nature of combat in the Middle East through recourse to the palliative effects of alcohol. The keenest expression of the men's civilian past came when they participated in sport. Sporting activities offered an important bridge between military and civilian worlds, particularly for volunteer and conscript soldiers not accustomed to army life. Sport was a constant feature of life in the Egyptian Expeditionary Force and particularly in the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps. Unsurprisingly for mounted units, horse racing proved very popular. In some instances, they did not use their own horses for the races, with the men of the New Zealand mounted rifles preferring to use the supply column's donkeys. They even took part in improvised polo matches using walking sticks and a football. 
Participation in horse races was encouraged by the offer of substantial prizes for those who took part. Often the officers of a unit would donate funds to pay the prize money, and in the case of the so-called Australian and New Zealand Army Corps steeplechase in March 1917, open to the whole division, Major General Shovel provided a cup for over five pounds. The one sport that animated all members of the division was rugby. It played at any and every opportunity, proving the soldiers' equivalent of the British infantry's predilection for football. Rugby competitions were taken very seriously by the men and units taking part. In the 1st Australian Light Horse Regiment, the trials for the divisional team were seen as so important that troopers were even allowed time off from musketry practice to prepare for them. Boxing tournaments were always capable of also drawing large crowds. The 2nd Australian Light Horse Regiment Brigade competition proved so popular that the crowd was arranged into tiers, with the rear section made up of men on horses, with men on camels behind them. Some individuals choose to indulge in even more obscure pastimes, with surfing on the beach of Rafa being so favored that the 6th Australian Light Horse Regiment had to set up their own beach patrols. Australian and New Zealand Army Corps identity, with its use of Gallipoli as a national rallying point and its reliance on the civilian backgrounds of its citizen soldiers, offers a powerful explanation for the endurance of the troopers during the First World War. This, however, is only insufficient to explain how these men dealt with the concept of taking part in the war. It does little to answer the question of how they coped with the horrors and trials of frontline combat, which lies at the heart of any understanding of morale. The Australian and New Zealand Army Corps legend rests on the notion that the skills of Australian and New Zealand soldiers lay specifically on the battlefield. Soldiers' combat records enhances this belief for the Middle Eastern Front. Both New Zealand and Australia's mounted units were late 19th century creation, and as such could not trace their lines back to units that had showed great fighting characteristics while serving under Marlborough or Wellington. The weakness of the regimental identity suggests that the bonds of loyalty between troopers were formed at the lower level of organization. The comradeship of a section was a key element of the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps legend that endured after the First World War. In this case, mateship was seen as a sacred bond that could only truly be forged under the harsh conditions of combat. The small group cohesion of a section was enhanced in mounted regiments by the relationship between the troopers and their horses. Many men felt a strong affinity with their animals, which was built up over several years of service. The horses, which required constant work to maintain their operational fitness, offered a distraction for the men of the mounted division. Rather than worrying about the capricious nature of combat, they could concentrate on the routine of cleaning and feeding their equine comrades. The bonds between troopers and their horses were often as strong as those between mates in a section. Losses in horses in combat, which could be substantial during periods of sustained artillery fire, enhanced the emotional impact of battle. The greatest sense of loss was felt at the end of the war, when the division was required to hand in its horses. The healthiest ones were allotted to the Indian army, but the older and weaker ones were destroyed. Many men were unhappy with this policy but it was perceived as a preferable to selling the horses to the local population in Egypt and Palestine, as the Arabs were thought to lack even basic skills of animal husbandry. 
casualties did have a significant effect on the maintenance of a continuous identity within a regiment, squadron or troop in the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps, but they did not fully destroy it. Those veterans who survived a number of engagements rose up through the ranks of the regiment to hold positions of authority. Crucially, the veteran members of a regiment provided a culture around which the new drafts could be prepared for frontline combat. Many of the reinforcements for the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps were poorly trained and knew little of what to expect on the battle. Nevertheless, the Light Horse and Mounted Rifles depots in Egypt worked hard to make sure that only men who were ready were sent up to the division in the line. As a result, strict standards were set for riding and shooting tests. Training at base depots, however, could only deal with the basics of military life and once men reached their unit, more intensive training began. Exercises were a common feature of rest periods away from the front. In December 1916, the division organized a large-scale practice assault on a fake Turkish position at Masaid. The scheme involved the Australian and New Zealand Mounted Division, as well as two infantry divisions. The exercise was designed to find out how long it took troops to march to a particular point in Sinai as well as the speed of their deployment into various formations. Training did not always take place on such a grand scale. Regiments regularly put their men through range courses to maintain a high standard of musketry. In order to prevent training becoming a monotonous experience, a number of units held musketry competitions between themselves. Training remained largely within the control of the division through the war. Rarely were regimental or squadron commanders given the opportunity to instigate their own programs, with schemes often being set out in detail at brigade level. On the battlefield, it was the junior officers who fulfilled the critical role of maintaining morale, as they controlled the squadrons and troops that were involved in the sharp end of the combat. Junior leaders were aware of and understood the importance of their role in combat. The division took great care to make sure that its officers were well trained and skilled in the tasks they were to carry out. A large number of junior officers attended courses at the Imperial School of Instruction at Zitun. Here, the three-month course taught the various tasks required of a troop leader, including the maintenance of discipline, sanitation, march discipline, the duties of orderly officers and map reading. Regimental commander could have an important impact on the motivation of the troopers under their command. They also provided a critical link between the wishes of the brigade and divisional staff and the men in the front line. Overall, the so-called Anzac legend asserts the independence and unique characteristics of the Australian and New Zealand fighting men. Through its numerous battlefield successes in the Middle Eastern campaign, the division grew to see itself as an elite formation in the Egyptian Expeditionary Force. The Australian and New Zealand Mounted Division did not, however, possess an unblemished military record. The success achieved in Sinai and at Beersheba were tempered by the failures at the First Battle of Gaza and on the two Transjordan raids. Critically, the operation in Sinai saw the division taking on small unsupported Turkish forces, most notably at Rafah and Magdhaba. In large-scale operations, battlefield success was no longer down to the actions of one division, and the Australian and New Zealand Army Corps was required to play its part in operation controlled by sometimes inadequate corps commanders. It was in such circumstances that the benefits of Australian and New Zealand Army Corps identity came to the fore. The primary group loyalties 
engendered by the sections and reinforced through the extensive and effective training schemes of the division helped to instill a professional military outlook among its amateur soldiers. This allowed them to act independently away from supporting units. Strong and intelligent leadership by junior officers at squadron and troop level, bolstered by the example of skilled regimental, brigade and divisional command, helped to maintain the combat endurance of the light horse and mounted rifles. In an imperial war in the Middle East, the Australian and New Zealand army corps proved themselves to be the archetypal professional imperial warriors. With that being said, we've arrived to the very end of this episode. As always, thank you for listening to the Orient Express History Podcast that aims to provide interesting and detailed information about the history of the Middle East. This particular episode and all the information come from a book called The British Imperial Army in the Middle East by James Edward Kitchen. In this matter, I highly recommend this book to anybody who would like to get even deeper knowledge about this subject since the book dwells into bigger depth not only in the case of Australian and New Zealand forces but also into other matters such as the presence and action of the British Indian Army and much more. Also, if you found this episode interesting, I will be more than glad for sharing and you can also visit my Instagram account or Facebook page called The Orient Express Podcast, where I am constantly posting interesting stuff related to previous or upcoming episodes. So if you're curious about the topic of the upcoming episode, don't forget to hit the like and follow button. See you next week with another episode of The Orient Express History Podcast. <laughs>